for us, when we think about race and when we think about multicultural and multiracial movements, we're thinking about unity and we're thinking about ensuring that we have concentrated power to create the communities that we want to see. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guests today are the co-executive directors of Detroit Action, Brandon Snyder and Jennifer Disla. Detroit Action is a union of black and brown, low and no income, homeless and housing insecure Detroiters fighting for political power to create housing and economic justice. We spoke about the state of community and political organizing in Detroit and Michigan and what Brandon and Jennifer are working on. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Brandon and Jennifer at Detroit Action. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Brandon and Jennifer, would you each mind introducing yourselves and giving me quick biographies? Jennifer? Sure. My name is Jennifer Disla. I'm the co-executive director of Detroit Action. I have been with Detroit Action since um, the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 as the organizing director. And prior to that, I worked for over 10 years with SCIU Local One. And I'm Brandon Snyder. I'm a co-executive director at Detroit Action. Detroit Action is a grassroots, member-led, community-based organization uh, building power for working-class Black and brown folks here in Metro Detroit. Born and raised Detroiter, my folks moved here in the 1940s with their parents uh, to escape whites here in the South, and also for the promise of good jobs and uh, good schools. My um, mother worked for the Detroit newspapers and the striking newspapers in 95. My dad is a city employee, so we come from a long line of uh, working class um, households here in the city. Uh, I've been the ED since uh, 2016. The organization relaunched as Detroit Action from Good Jobs Now, which was a uh, SEIU Fight for Fair Economy campaign in the Detroit Action Commonwealth. Um, it relaunched in 2019 from that marriage. We've been uh, working to build power and change lives ever since. You know, I've talked to people who have been organizing in other states, in Minnesota, in Missouri, across the country. And I've talked to people who are working on the political side more. It's just striking to see how much work is going on around the country to get people together to change their own lives. How would you guys characterize your relationship with the people that you work with in the city of Detroit? Yeah, I mean, for us, we we think about organizing and um, electoral organizing and traditional organizing as a marriage, to say to speak. We believe in multiple powers of strategy. And so we definitely think through on how do we get electeds into positions of power to get the things that the communities need. And so when we think about relationships with a community and relationships with elected officials, we definitely always start with issues and start with um, engaging folks on what are the issues that they care about and what are the issues that they want to see changed in their community and then connected to the power on how to bring that change to the community. So for us, yes, politics is a vehicle where we know that at the end of the day, we know that it's a vehicle to get the change that we want to see in the community, but we don't just stop at that vehicle. We want to make sure that we are also doing political education to ensure that 
folks know on how they can get the things that they want for their community. How would you answer that, Brandon? I mean, I, to be honest, kind of rejected the premise. So we are not an organization that operates in capital P politics, you know, Democrats and Republicans. I'm not sure what you mean by the premise, because what I'm asking about is the relationship between your organization and the people you work with. The argument that I want to make is like, we are the people that we work with. We are the folks that we are organizing, you know, so, you know, we don't work on housing because the community over there cares about housing. We, we work on housing because we've experienced housing crises and we've experienced homelessness ourselves. And that the people who, that we work with are our neighbors, our relatives, our, our friends, not, you know, some, you know, community over there. It's, so that, that's the sort of like position that I, I push back on a bit, slightly bit is that. Actually, that's exactly what I was getting at with a question, because what I've seen uh, that I like about groups like yours, and I don't know yours very well, is that it really is that people don't think about it as a hierarchical relationship at all or a leader sort of relationship, more of, of people banding together to gain more power for themselves, which you are helping do and working together with people like yourselves. That's right. I think like when we think about, you know, organizing, it's about like relational power. So how do you build power for yourself amongst others? And how do we build power for ourselves in a communal sort of sense? So, you know, when we talk about organizing or we talk about campaigns, you know, again, it's not, you know, me as the person who is, you know, leading the charge from the front. It's us as a community that is, you know, creating the policy, that's creating the strategy, you know, and we're doing that through our lived experiences, you know, so, so often or so typical, like, well, you know, the, the, the rub that I have when we talk about campaign work from, you know, traditional capital P politics, Democrats and Republicans is that so much of it is led by experts and the expertise is, you know, often given from, you know, how many degrees folks have and how many, you know, studies you put out, which is important expertise, but it also misses out on the fact that like people's lived experiences, you know, often, it, you know, and those anecdotes that people have from living through policy is equal amounts of importance. And so for us, you know, when we talk about building power and, and, and shaping narratives, we want to be able to censor or recensor, you know, those people who, you know, who have been unemployed, those people who have been through the criminal justice system, et cetera, um, and ourselves and our stories in that policymaking process. That makes sense to me. I have noticed just looking, say, at both of your LinkedIn resumes that you both have very deep experience in organizing though and have learned quite a bit along the way about how to do this kind of work and that is a kind of expertise and i don't think there's any shame in expertise could you talk a little each of you uh starting with jennifer about like what have you learned in the years that you've put in and worked like this that you apply to detroit action yeah i think you know brandon definitely alluded to this in his last comments is that the experts are those closest to the pain and closest to the ground on the issue. I have worked in a lot of right-to-work states when I was in labor organizing. And many times in those states, it was the members who were ready to keep their union strong and ready to fight for their worker rights at the shop. It wasn't me saying, you need to keep the resources going, but it was them knowing that with collective power and organized money and organized people, they would get to see the change that they wanted to see. And so I think the way I utilize that expertise now in Detroit Action is really in with the housing justice work and all our issue-based work, really listening to members about what are the issues that are closest to the ground. Right now, we've been, the Detroit for several years, was based on overassessed on taxes, and we're you know there's a six hundred million dollars overassessment that Detroiters are due, and it's not only the money, um, but it's the lived experience of having to uproot your whole family from a from a home and from a school system and from a community that belonged to them, and that many times face homelessness over that that trauma of insecure housing is something that's 
that you can't put a price tag on that, but it's justice that needs to be met to be a person as an organizer, to be the person to let uplift those voices and those injustices, to be able to connect with members and connect their power to change. And as Brandon had talked earlier, really come together as a community to, to build that, that power together. What would you say you, you learned in your career before this? With, uh, you know, faith-based organizing, you know, I think the lessons are, you know, really centered around values and like the idea that the values are the things that spur action. You know, people, whether they're black or white, people are, you know, part of like varying, you know, political stripes and ideology. What drive people to action, you know, when their pastor or deacon or whomever at a church, you know, instructs like this is the thing that we want to be a part of is like how do people articulate and understand the like the values that are like that 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 guide them. And a lot of people take, you know, and, and that was one of the things, the lessons, big, big lesson that I took. For instance, like when I um worked in Baton Rouge or Indiana and where where I did faith-based organizing, why people would want to get involved in transit or uh violence uh reduction. You know, wasn't because of, you know, a candidate or wasn't because of some, you know, party establishment. It was because of how they read and interpreted the Bible and how they saw that their work and their value of being good citizens meant and being good uh, stewards of the community meant. I mean, those lessons they took from that. And so for me, being able to understand and being able to, like, offer up a, a set of values that our community at Detroit Action sort of responds to and relates to um, is really important for how we want to see ourselves engage in the work and engage in the political process, if you will. How's Detroit doing these days? I mean, how is it doing as a city? How are the people doing? How well is it governed? What's your assessment of the current state of affairs, Jennifer? So, you know, there's this thing happening called the pandemic. And a lot of folks would say that a crisis began at that time. And Detroit was facing a crisis way before that time. Currently, right now, we we actually have a housing canvas that we've been working on where we've been helping connect community members with rent relief resources and help think through on how we can fight for better protections on evictions and right to counsel. There's hundreds, hundreds of folks a week that are facing evictions. And yet we have a billionaire that's well known connected to um, Detroit, who's a strong businessman, Dan Gilbert, who has made billions of dollars in profit during this time. And so like these two worlds, these worlds of where people are facing eviction and homelessness, facing joblessness, and then another world where people are getting profits and are are doing a lot of economic gain has not been reconciled. And our leaders, um, you know, we currently had a municipal election and we do have a new political landscape that we're excited about in our city council and we want to encourage those city councilors to continue to do the right thing. And, you know, time will tell. But the reality is that in this current moment, our, our city leadership has not been providing the resources that our community needs. We often talk about in the city of Detroit, this sort of narrative of a tale of two cities where, you know, there's a city that's downtown that's prospering and thriving and you see you know, all of the uh, the glitzy sort of advertisement when you think of like Shinola, you think about, you know, the uh, Rocket, you know, Dan Gilbert's uh, set of corporations, or you think about like the sparkling GM advertisements and Ford advertisements and like that tale of the city of Detroit. But there's another tale of Detroit when we think about this tale of two cities, which is the, the rest of the neighborhoods and the rest of the communities, you know, that is is dealing with the impacts of a foreclosure crisis that has existed, you know, throughout this uh, last decade, you know, a property tax foreclosure crisis, um, you know, that's a sort of ripple effect of the um, foreclosure crisis that we experienced in 2008 with the, uh, the mortgage crisis. There's, uh, you know, the crisis of, of water shutoffs and, you know, the lack of unemployment 
and the sort of proliferation of uh, charter schools that we see in our community. So there are, um, you know, dozens of, of uh, school districts in the city of Detroit in the boundaries where 20 years ago there was just the city of Detroit's public schools. And so you have all of these challenges and all of these things that exist in um, Detroit neighborhoods, while the advertised effect of like what is Detroit is this income and influx of like upperly mobile white young um, professionals. And so those two identities don't really reconcile because you have, as Jen mentioned, a pandemic that has exacerbated a number of conditions that working class black and brown folks experience here in, in the city trade. When it, you talk about housing, when you talk about jobs and job insecurity, when you talk about public education and, and what children are dealing with, whether it's you know lack of uh, internet access or family members who aren't able to actually like support and help them on public on homework now that we once we move to remote learning or you just got you know the fact that um when we're thinking about our neighborhoods and we're thinking about like the makeup of our neighborhoods that there are so many folks that are without actual you, you know concrete housing stock a uh, good housing stock so like we've seen homes that were built in uh right after the first world war sort of deteriorate over time and there isn't any investment and development in, in, in these homes or in these neighborhoods. And so for us, when we talk about like how Detroit is doing, it's a loaded question because, you know, there's one half of Detroit that's doing really, really, really well. And that's about like the 7.2 miles that makes up downtown, midtown, Corktown. And then the rest of the city isn't actually doing well and is actually dealing with the effects, uh, the exacerbated effects of the pandemic the effects of the recession that happened in 2008. Brandon, where would you say power resides in Detroit? Jen made a really good point about like power being concentrated um, in the hands of our millionaires and billionaires and, you know, our corporate actors. And I think when we think about um, power and its concentration, it's in the hands of you know, our billionaires like Dan Gilbert, it's in the hands of our uh, local billionaires like the Illich family and how they sort of had a hand in development. Um, it's in the hands of uh, the Michigan Chamber of Commerce. And, it, you know, they've been a sort of bad actor in um, how uh, policy is passed at the state level. And then it's in the hands, you know, again, of of folks like uh, the DeVos family and the, um, the Prince family on the west side of the state who, you know, have had an outsized grip on politics throughout our state. Would you agree with that about power, uh, Jen? Absolutely. I, you know, I'm not going to echo. I totally agree everything that Brandon said. How much power resides among people that are organizing through Detroit Action or other uh, groups like yours? Yeah. I mean, I think coming out of the municipal elections, like we, we were able to really garner um, three of the six progressives that have just won their elections because of the Detroit Action members and because of the work that we did through our electoral program. When I think about Detroit Action 10 years from now, you know, I definitely feel like as we continue to build and engage through our electoral program, we'll be able to be as equivalent or more than the Dan Gilberts of the world. Because um, honestly, like even coming out of that municipal election alone, we have 11,000 folks that we're ready to engage into the organization and really think through on how we connect them to our year-round organizing. The city of Detroit is much more the majority African-American, right? Yeah, it's about like 79% um, Black, one of like the largest um, Black cities per capita in the country. and but, we, but we've got a rising Latino and a rising Middle Eastern sort of community, folks that are coming from Yemen and um, Bangladesh, as well as our folks who are, um, you, you know, who have moved here from Iraq, you know, as like Chaldean Christians and folks. So it's a, it's a rising Middle Eastern community. Dearborn, which is our one of our neighboring suburbs, is one of the largest Middle Eastern communities in the, um, in the world outside of the Middle East. You know, it's us in San Francisco. And then when you think about you know, again, what that means for like culture and what that means for how we sort of like redefine like what Michigan is, you know, it's a community that is 
you know, much more diverse than like, you know, than, than sort of like our, our friends on the, on the coast think about, you know, Michigan and, and Detroit specific, you know, is a, is a community that's made up of, you know, black and brown folks on both sides of the state and specifically here in the city of Detroit and, you know, to the North and Flint. What's working best to organize people in the city to get things done in their best interests? What sort of tactics and strategies and campaigns and efforts are you seeing bear fruit? Yeah, I think for me, the things that we're trying to lean into, we're a, um, a old school community organization that, you know, the thing that we push and believe in and centralize is, you know, one-to-one conversations, holding committee meetings, um, and moving those committees to action. So like, that's the core of our work. That'll always be the core of our work. Um, and then another couple of other old school things that we do is we have a field program that and we ask, you know, organizers, field organizers to go out and knock doors and have a bunch of conversations. And, and then we, we utilize a, a mutual aid program. I think what's working and what's unique about those things and how we're able to like generate power from that is that we do them in tandem. And so, you know, organizations that operate with mutual aid don't also usually have a field program. You know, organizations that are relational in nature where it's, you know, one organizer building a crew of 15 don't often you know, operate with a mutual aid program that we can direct folks to when they're in need. Um, You know, organizations that do any of those three don't have a year-round digital program that is, you know, building the capacity of its ranks to send out hundreds of thousands of text messages and respond and run digital ads. And so we're trying to do a lot of things that are traditional and old school at the core of our um, organization and utilize a lot of unique flares and twists to bring in folks and be a part of that. And I think that's been the most like unique thing when we think about how we build power and how we want to build the sort of political home that folks can engage with and learn and grow in. Other examples are as well as our cultural organizing and also our pop ed and just really been, been able to engage um, young folks in different ways of what it means to be to be in, electorally in like politics or like to also think about what does it mean to bring change to their community. We've had events such as Freaky Vote Fridays. We've also where like there's young people that come to the polls and vote early. We've also um, had had the opportunity to really dig in with members when Brandon was talking about one-on-ones at our committee meetings, really dig in with members of uh, what's the Federal Reserve and why should we care about it? Or, you know, what's the analysis of corporate accountability and why should we care about corporations and how do they impact our everyday lives? Like, why are we going after Dan Gilbert? But in a way that is really engaging and also in a way that really um, builds on their strengths. What is your hope that going after people like Dan Gilbert will do? What would you like the end result to be? Yeah, I mean, for me, like, ultimately, it's about folks like billionaires like Dan Gilbert and others to act in the best interest for the common good. Instead of being profit over people, really think about the common good and the collective good of the world. Sometimes it's it's hard to hold that idealism when you've been organizing as long as I have. That's the world and the reason why I organize. I think the other part is like that concentration of power that you were referencing earlier. You know, the only way to really engage with it and shake it up and break it is really to be able to hold folks accountable and to put forth a different sort of perspective of like what power can look like and should look like. When we think about like accountability and we think about like civic engagement, Far too often, it's only focused on elected officials, you know, and rightly so. That's the space that, like, we're all taught uh, that, like, power and, like, decisions are made in. But being able to teach our people and being able to work with our folks that uh, on the idea that, like, decisions aren't just being made in the in the in the public arena at the voting booth or at the city hall, they're being made behind closed doors with donors. And they're being made behind, um, you know, they're being made through, you know, these different voting tools or uh, civic tools and vessels like 
super PACs and, and political action committees and, and, and lobbyists, being able to teach our folks that these are the ways that power is being distributed and also concentrated allows us to be able to you know, challenge that and really attempt to seize power in our communities and our neighborhoods for good. All across the country, there is tension between cities and state governments, especially when uh, you have a Republican state government passing laws to reduce the power in cities or to overrule local ordinances or also not like deliberately not help cities. Uh, there's there's a real problem with that. What's it like in Michigan? Yeah, I mean, currently right now, our state legislator passed a whole series of voter suppression bills. And luckily, our governor was able to veto them. But there's a ballot initiative that they're trying to move forward in order to silence um, Black, as we feel, Black voices, because it's a response to the 2020 election. And, you know, when, when I think about the state government, I also think about our preemptions and like how that's also withholding us um, to do rent control and minimum wage fights. And so right now, our state legislator is not necessarily um, one that provides for our thriving communities locally in a city level um, and doesn't provide the opportunity for us to see the things that we want to see. Yeah, we're also, just as you alluded to, we're in a divided government. So, you know, we have um, close to a supermajority in our state Senate and a uh, Republican rule in our state house. Um, and the, the state, Michigan State Senate has been under, you know, Republican rule since 1985. Our state house has flip-flopped over the last couple of cycles. Right now, there's a four-vote split between Democrats and Republicans and who controls the House. Uh, I mean, Jen alluded to a lot of like this on-the-ground tactical problems that come with uh, this divided government. I think the other thing to think about when we talk about divided government is that because of the nature and because of the structures that exist in, in Michigan politics, like we have term limits in our state house and our Senate. State representatives only serve six years and then they're out. You know, state uh, state senators serve eight years and they're out. So 14 years of legislative involvement total you can rack up. But what that means, unfortunately, is that the folks who've been there, done that, seen people come and go are lobbyists. And the folks who are essentially writing policy are lobbyists. And that means that we have, um, you know, a structural issue of like who's actually making policy, who's actually the ones who know what's going on in our state capital. It's not our Republican friends. It's not our Democratic friends. It's the folks who are, you know, there every day in, day out, you know, that are paid by lobbying firms. And um, what ends up happening is that, you know, candidates or elected officials of both parties end up leaning on those folks to make policy. We have that challenge that exists. And then we also just have the challenge of because of those term limits and because of the importance of primaries in both parties, you know, you have um, folks on the right, at least, becoming more and more extreme and being the sort of um, folks who, who are d- devoid of reality and, and are producing policies that reflect that. When I've talked to people in the organizing space, in analogous organizations to yours and other states, there's been a tension between the regular political people, the sort of progressive political ecosystem in the state, and an organizing group. The organizing group will often will feel that their connection to the community is deeper, that it is uh, year round, year in, year out, that they don't want to be treated kind of like a vended field campaign by the political establishment that needs their votes just in elections. And, you know, clearly those votes in elections make a big difference to Detroit and the people of the cities and people that are struggling. How do you reconcile that tension? How do you think about your place in the progressive ecosystem in the state of Michigan? The first thing that comes to my mind is this last election. So this municipal election with our coalition partners, we did a C3 report card and where we got a lot of uh, the folks that were running for office committed for the $600 million over-assessed taxes ordinance. And, you know, we were just having this conversation not too long ago before this meeting where, like, for me, the analysis is about 
you're, once you're in office, that tension is only reconciled by delivering the things that the people need by the policies. So we won this municipal election. We got the seats that we needed. And until those policies become reality, we're not going to be able to really reconcile that tension of folks seeing us as a vendor or like seeing us just good to get people into office. I think it's important that the electeds understand that we are as an organizing organization, uh, we are committed to and besides our members on creating the community that they want to see. So it's not just votes and it can't just be for bipartisan, bipart- like with the Build Back Better infrastructure structure bills that we have been seeing with the bipartisan bills and how that has held us back on like the infrastructure that we really need in our communities and especially communities like Detroit. I struggle with that tension because like for me, I'm, I'm still in the moment of reconciling it because I, I don't think the reconciliation is going to happen until we get the policies that we need. And that's when we're really going to be able to see the true commitment of electeds to the people. Yeah, the only thing I would add to that is that tension that we feel around being looked at as like vended canvases, being, you know, uh, being, you know, being turnout apparatuses, you know, for the Democratic Party, you know, there are, you know, some challenges that come with that around, you know, like in these particular moments when the party apparatus maybe not, isn't doing it, some, a thing that the, your membership agrees with, how do we push back and how do we showcase like, hey, look, the Venn diagram of things that we care about, you know, is, you know, there is some overlap, but it's not a complete circle. It's not a full circle. And I think part of what we've tried to do really um, to like push back against that and answer that and answer the question that you're raising, sort of assert our independence. You know, so we do uh, endorsement questionnaire. We do uh, our year round canvas. We try and raise independent money so that way we aren't beholden to um, funders and foundations and um, parties. We try to also um, really be able to hold folks accountable on the left and the right. So that we can actually be able to pass things that we believe are important. When we think about this uh, infrastructure fight, you know, part of our analysis that we shared, as well as the analysis that our, many of our partners in the state share, is that in order to move this and to make sure that the build back better, uh, the human infrastructure piece gets passed, was that we needed to go after uh, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkins and that we needed to encourage uh, our partner and um, and Congresswoman here in the city of Detroit, Rashida Tlaib, um, to vote no on the uh, the BIF, which is you know the bipartisan infrastructure package, and so we were able to you know lean into that and really try and exert some independence uh, to say like this is what it looks like, this is what our communities want, and if you want our votes and you want to support us, this is what you need to do, and so I think that that's part of what that looks like to really exert independence and push back against this sort of push and pull of being a vended canvas thought of at least the reality though at the end of the day also comes down to like structures is like how are we doing the work myself and jennifer to like organize funders and organize um the people at the top that are decision makers to really change their hearts and minds you know so we're asking organizers every day um, to go out, build relationships and mobilize, you know, working people into action. And like the truth is, is that my job is to go out and organize and mobilize and shape the Ford Foundation or Kresge or folks like that, you know, and have them do the work that matters to our community. If you could say a few a word or two to the state party, the the uh, national party, uh, the big elected officials in, in the Democratic Party, what would you tell them? The lesson that we have is that, you know, our communities are here and our communities exist and that we're going to, we as Detroit Action are going to continue to fight for those communities with or without, you know, parties and funders. Like we're going to continue to do the work. And that's the thing that matters most. I think a lot of people who are looking at the nation broadly from the, a big picture, from the step back, are thinking about this being a battle right now between sort of a multiracial democracy and a kind of authoritarian white right wing option that between the two parties that there's just a genuinely humongous difference at this time how do you think about how race and power 
in your world connects to those things in Michigan and in the nation in this time where so much is at stake beyond there's stuff at stake from, you know, what amount of money you have to pay the rent in a locality. And there's stuff at stake about whether our democracy itself will continue. I would even say there's even stuff at stake in regards to like climate. Whether the world will be inhabitable. Absolutely. We're in a, a really trying time and we're in a trying time from the neighborhoods to the cities, to the states, to the country, to the world. How do you figure out how, what to fight for and how to line yourself up and who to ally with? How do you think about those big questions when you're trying to also help people get food on the table and not be oppressed by their taxes and have the proper services delivered and all of these challenges? Yeah, I think for me as an organizer and even going way back when I first started, it's really been about, especially as a Black woman, about what is within my influence and what is within my control. I think about my own healthcare story and I think about my own battles with, uh, you know, uh, before the Obamacare and even now we still have to lot more, more ways to go for healthcare reform. I do feel that there is a tension with the multiracial movement and a white authoritarian. For me, I, it goes back to Brandon's earlier point about values. I think it's a reckoning of values of our country and a reckoning of like, what, what does it mean to be human? And what does it mean to have human dignity in this country? Where we know the founders of America went wrong. They had ideals, but they weren't practicing those ideals and, and all the aspects of that of the way that they should have with slavery and with with the stealing of the land of Native Americans. We have come to a place now that we need to reconcile and we need to ensure that we are creating a, a society that is one that for me at the core is humanity and human dignity. And I think that's the battle. I think race and class and white versus black is real. Those are real social constructs. And they were built as social constructs to destroy the humanity that we have with one another. I would say, too, like a lot of the sort of like prognostication things that have come out of post uh, Virginia's election is this argument from some folks and like the Democratic Party structure is that like we need to talk about race less. And that we need to talk about race less because what ends up happening is that the right is able to like capture that that energy. And I think for us, the reality is that we actually need to talk about race more and that we need to make sure that, you know, our candidates and our causes are leaning into the intersectionalities of our lives, of policy and of this um, of this country in order to really create a multicultural, multiracial um, populist movement. I think for us, when we think about like the vision of, of Detroit and we think about the vision of the state, it doesn't leave out, you know, our friends that are uh, native that are in the upper peninsula. And it doesn't leave out, you know, our um, newly arriving Latino or um, or Middle Eastern friends that are in, you know, Southwest Detroit or Dearborn or um, anywhere on the Southwest side or our black, you know, our black families and friends who you know, moved here during the Great Migration, because that is the actual pathway to victory, is being able to bring not just those people of color, but also organizing and talking about race and talking to white folks about race is the way that we win. We see that as like the work that we do in our housing conversations and our jobs conversations um, in our criminal justice conversations. What are the racial demographics of the state at large? Is it majority white? Yeah, this is a majority white state. There is a numerical challenge if things become uh, lined up on a racial basis. To win power in the state, you need you need people across multiple races in order to win. Yeah, that's right. I don't think racial justice organizing disagrees with that. I think what I posited with a lot of folks are trying to position and put out there is that like, Right now, the right and the Republicans are talking about race and they aren't backing away or they aren't shying away about like what race you know looks like. and what They're, they're trying to divide on race. And yeah, they're using it as a tool to divide and they're using it as a tool to say that like 
we shouldn't, we, sh- we, you should be afraid of the person that's across the street from you, down a corner from you that looks different from you. And what we're trying to articulate and put out there in the world is that the only way for us to win is for us to see like the humanity in our neighbor and us to realize that that person who's an immigrant is in our enemy. It's the person who's trying to actually divide us, the person who is paying for that attack at the person who is benefiting off us being afraid and isolated. Absolutely. And I think digging deeper on that is like, it's really about why is the tactic division and why are these two communities being kept separate and how going back to the concentration of power, what would it look like if we all united and had united power? There's communities outside of Detroit and the predominantly white rural communities that are facing the same issues as rent control, that are being having making decisions about whether they have enough to pay rent. So, you know, this is not just an issue on Detroit when we think about the issues that are facing a lot of the folks across the state. Um, if, if we just take preemption, for example. So if preemption, if we were all unified on preemption, rent control is going to impact as many people across the state, across class, across race. And I think for us, when we think about race and when we think about multicultural and multi racial movements, we're thinking about unity and we're thinking about ensuring that we have concentrated power to create the communities that we want to see. What's your view of the current Democratic administration and narrowly, narrowly controlled Congress? Do you think that they are on the right track? I think Brandon talked about it earlier in regards, like, I think Build Back Better is a a key example on how folks need to ensure that that human infrastructure is priority and that also that they are creating policies that are going to create real change in communities. I think it also goes back to the conversation we were having earlier about accountability with electeds. And so I think to answer your question directly, I think they could be doing better. I think it's definitely an opportunity for folks to stand up in leadership about what is needed in this country. Yes, you're responsible to a district, but your decision, your vote that you cast is responsible to shaping the whole nation. Yeah. And the only thing I would add to that too, is that, you know, we're really in an interesting moment where when we think about policy and when we think about like the mark that is made on like this Congress and this White House, is that at the end of the day, our people don't really care about the reconciliation process. Folks haven't even heard of that. Like folks don't know what that means, but what they do want to see is that they want to see things be delivered. They want to see results and they want to see action. And when we get so caught up in process and we get so caught up in in that sort of like behind the scenes, behind the curtain fight, um, and, and you know that's when we that's when we lose. Like like the the whole the old adage if you're explaining you're losing is you know real. The other real you know component that we should be thinking about as organizers is like how do we get more folks that look like us that come from our values that share our values in the ranks of elected leadership. You know so we are able to get a lot done because Rashida Tlaib is a former activist you know, movement lawyer, um, you know, and is connected to the activist community. You know, you can see that in Minnesota with Ilhan Omar. Um, you see that in New York with uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the, those folks being activists and, and um, Cori Bush in Missouri, those folks being connected to movement as key. And I think for us, in order to really sort of like shape the pathway in the future of like the, the, uh, the government that we want, We've got to start electing our folks and also not have to be afraid to run. Have either of you just thought about running yourself? No, no, I, uh, I don't see that as my pathway ever, ever. You're pretty firm on that. Why? So the joke I would make like with folks that know me better is like, have you been around me? Do you think I would survive having 7.30 a.m.? Um, constituent meetings? No. no. But like, you know, I think... You don't think it's the right personality or a constitution? I don't think I have the right uh, disposition. I'm with you there. I'll I'll tell you that. I think the reality is that like, 
we need more people to be organizers. I know that there's a lot of like grandiose and a lot of like glamour and like running for office, being the person in the chair, being the person on TV. But we really need people to be able to win and set that person up for success. Like history books talk so much about Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr., but like Ella Baker, Bayard Rustin, et cetera, were the people who actually made that the civil rights movement happen. And like we need more of those folks to be able to win. How about you? Are you going to run, Jennifer? Never. <laughs> yeah. I think being an organizer and running a community organization is a great pursuit. It's an important one. It makes uh, it makes a big difference for people when it's done well in a community. So I appreciate that you guys are putting the shoulders to the wheel on it. Uh, what's it like being co-executive directors? Whenever I've talked to people running organizations, this kind of partnership is not without its challenges. How has it been for you two? Brandon and I are 90 days in, a little over 90 days. <laughs> <laughs> I reflect a lot about my um, my experience as an organizer and wanting to be in an open and principled struggle with public relationship with someone. And I'm, I'm proud to say that Brandon and I, um, at least on my half, I'm proud to say that like we have been able to be in strong principled struggle with each other and not and then not me worry if you're going to do something crazy behind my back. <laughs> So really appreciate that and really appreciate having his support. I share a lot of that. The goal of like community organizing and activism is like to share power. So so like the first question you asked at the beginning of this is like, how do we share power and how do we share decision making? The co-executive director model is a real good emblematic way to do that. The reality is like when you talk to EDs across the board, like this is a terrible job to do solo. You know, it's not a, it's, it's a it's, hard job. It's a hard job. It's a lot of, uh, it's a lonely job, right? Hard, lonely job where you, where it's a lot of criticism and critique. And the, um, while the book may stop at you, you know, it's a lot of, uh, you know, it's a lot of problems. With the buck stomps on you quite oh, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so being able to like actually have not just the community on the outside to say, okay, here are all the things that I hate about my job today, but actually to have someone with you to like commiserate and strategize is like really the goal. And it's really when we think about like sustainability of this work and of like movement leaders, like we all should be trying to strive for like the sort of co-executive director model because, you know, one person just ain't gonna cut it. What question have I not asked you that I should have? Both of us have been organizing for quite some time. I think uh, I'm curious, Brandon, why why do you stay organizing for so long? Yeah, Brandon, why? Why? What's your why, why Brandon? Why, Brandon? Why, Brandon? I, I, um, and don't say let's go, Brandon, please. Yeah. Let's go, Brandon. Oh, my God. Uh, that's got to be a nightmare for you right now. Right, right now, that's so annoying. <laughs> <laughs> I became an organizer, um, you know, when I got swept up in the sea of hope and change. I, you know, was reading and learning about Alinsky and, um, and then towards the end of my college career, I got arrested. So these three things happened all back to back or at the same time in 08 and 09 as I was getting ready to graduate. When I was in the, uh, you know, Washtenaw County Jail, I would meet folks, you know, very brief time, but you're meeting folks who are in the shadows of Eastern Michigan and Ann Arbor, uh, University of Michigan. So, you know, Ann Arbor being, well, Washtenaw being one of the wealthiest college communities um, in the country, Washtenaw being, um, you know, one of the, the home of, you know, Duolingo and a lot of like tech companies. But there are folks who are in the shadows who um, will never be able to walk on a college campus, never sit in those classrooms, and, and that I would be in or stay going to prison and jail. I always go back to this sort of babies in a river sort of analogy when I think about my why is that, you know, when I got my legal situation resolved, my mentor really sat me down and thought of, and had me think about like all of our sort of like responses to systems and to the problems of the world really focus on the superficial. Like we often try to self-help our way out of these problems. We try to educate our way out of these problems. We try to just do charity for problems. But like when we think about the babies in a, ri in a river parable, it's not about like just drying babies off and sending them on their way, but it's about figuring out like why the hell are, are babies in a river in the first place? 
and like let's hold those accountable for putting them in the river. And that's really like the why is like I believe that like there's so much more power in getting things accomplished together. And there's so much beauty in like seeing people who didn't know that they were leaders actually become leaders and lead on things. I think that we have to ask Jen the same question about her why in this context. I got really brought into the fold when I was diagnosed with a chronic medical condition and had to face bankruptcy because my good healthcare coverage didn't cover the, the hospital care. And even to this day, I currently have a medical team and my medical team informed me that they weren't going to take my health care coverage anymore and I would have to pay more than, you know, out of pocket rate. For me personally, I just haven't lived in the world that um, provides me with what I need and I can only imagine others. And I I know that pain and, and that suffering of what it means to to feel powerless I refuse to sit in my in my wallow. I want to go build power with people. So even in my hardest moments, I remember why I do this work for myself and for my community to ensure that we can have a better world. And I believe that we can have a better world. Well, I appreciate hearing both of those things. I think that's quite meaningful. I think it's probably a good note on which to call this to a close. Is there anything else either of you want to say? Thanks for having us. I really appreciate this, this conversation. Same. Thank you. Those were Brandon and Jennifer with Detroit Action. They're at DetroitAction.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at GreatBattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.